Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is Richard Howe. Richard is an accomplished entrepreneur, tech executive, and board member. Among his many experiences, he served as a senior executive at fintech innovator Fair Isaac, the inventor of the FICO score, which profoundly changed the way credit worthiness is evaluated. He was also chief strategy officer at Axiom, the inventor of direct-to-consumer data-based marketing. Richard is currently the chairman and CEO of Innuvo, a market leader in artificial intelligence, aligning and delivering consumer-oriented product and brand messaging strategies online based on powerful, anonymous, and proprietary consumer intent data for agencies, advertisers, and partners. He's also active in various philanthropic and government initiatives, having served on numerous government-appointed commissions for the advancement of technology within the state of Arkansas. Richard Howe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve, and good morning. Let's get right into it. You have an incredible background. I want to learn so much about what you've done, and I know my my listeners are really interested to hear your thoughts on a whole host of topics. And the first one I want to start off with is the biggest issue facing advertising and why it's a problem for marketing generally. And it has to do with the cookie, right, and identity and ad targeting. But I know you know there's more to it than that, right? About privacy and things like that. It absolutely is more than that. It's easily translated to that cookie, and and of course everybody knows that because the media has you know picked up the the issue of the deprecation of the cookie. Probably for the last two years, it was an ongoing thing. But really, it, yeah, it's all about privacy, consumer privacy. You know, consumers have increasingly become you know, knowledgeable about how their data is being used, their their personal data, and they're not fond of it being used. And consequently, you know, governments and technology companies have, you know, like at least over the last probably three or four years started to put in systems, either legislative because it's government or technology because it's a technology company to effectively thwart, you know, companies who are using that data for advertising from actually being able to use that data. The cookie is probably the most used mechanism within the ad tech industry. It's not the only one though, Steve. And and you know the plumbing of the internet is complicated and and, and there's a lot of ways to figure out who someone is and then you know subsequently use their data. But the cookie has been the mechanism that's been used, you know, at least for the last 10 years and and for your listeners, you know, to simplify it. If you think about a database that has all the information about everybody in the United States in it, you need to be able to onboard that data somehow. How do I make, how do I use that data when I'm trying to make a decision about an ad? And the way that mechanism works today is your identity is captured in a number that's actually stored in the cookie. And it's uh, a number that's referred to in our industry as being persistent. Persistent is exactly what it sounds like. It's, you know, without knowing a number that is Steve all the time, I can't persistently go get his data 
if his number's changing, if I can't figure out who he is. So when that cookie goes away, basically the ID for Steve goes away. And when the ID for Steve goes away, the data is of no value. I can't onboard it. I can't use it to make a decision. So big, big, big changes happening. Lots of legislation started in Europe with GDPR. You know, the Europeans were first, you know, to sort to, of to, to start making, you know, changes, started leaking into California first, as things do with the California Protection Act. And now I think there's nine or 10 or 11 states, you know, that have various forms of consumer data privacy legislation and it won't be long before it's across the you know these united states technically apple has led the technical charge here uh, and everybody seems to be following them and they have systematically been making changes to their ios to the way they you know they track apps to effectively prevent the use of data uh, in a nutshell that's you know sort of the bucket you know of challenge if you will for marketing because marketing is 100% dependent, at least today, on using consumer data to make you know, the bulk of its you know, decisions about whether to show an ad or not. Now, you talked about Apple kind of setting the standard, right? And I want to hear about your, just in general, the industry's approach, right, to solving this issue. And mm. I think you called it, when we talked previously, first-party cookie path. Yes. But why, yes. It's doomed, why it's doomed to fail. So talk to us about that. Yeah, there, there's an, you know, a mature industry is what we have in advertising. I think we know that we, you know, advertising is not new, been around, well, for a hundred years from the, from the, the days when someone used to walk in a bank and you'd say, you know, you'd close them as a banking customer and you'd say, wow, Rich, you know, I've had him for a customer for a year now and he seems to pay his bills pretty well. Can I find more people who look like Rich? And, you know, you knew that from your local community. So you'd go, you know, go talk to Rich's friends. Right. There was analytics being done, only it wasn't the same kind of analytics that are done, you know, in today's world. Now you fast forward to, to today and, and that same analysis for, you know, for the most part gets done. A, you know, a, custom, a customer, a, you know, a brand takes a look at its existing clients. It takes all the data they've got about them. That allows them to sort of develop a profile of the, you know, of the optimal customer. And then they they go find lookalikes online and lookalikes are exactly what they sound like. If Rich and Steve are in a cohort and Rich is already a customer, but Steve isn't, but Steve looks a lot like Rich, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to see an ad in front of you, right? That says, Hey, you know, why don't you, you know, sign up for my bank because you look a lot like Rich and he's a good customer. So let's get more of this, those kind of people. That's why it's called lookalike. That, like I said, that mechanism and all the technology and all the data that supports that mechanism is at this point in our industry, a many, many billion dollar industry, many, many billions right, of dollars. And many, many tens of billions of dollars have been invested in those mechanisms, the storage of data, the analysis of the data, the identity resolution of people. This is a gigantic industry. So what happens in a mature industry typically Right. When something is changing, like like we're seeing, you know, if they start eliminating cookies, that means the very mechanisms that have been used for at least the last generation, you know, are suddenly at risk. And so so all those companies that have invested those tens of billions of dollars almost always do the same thing. They, they try to 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 leverage. By the way, this is the natural thing to do if, if you know, if you're a big company that's invested billions 
you, you look at what you have, you look at the change that's occurring and you're saying, how do I still use all these assets that I've invested billions of dollars in, right? So that I can keep doing the things that I've been doing successfully for so long. And in our industry, the mechanism that you would use to solve that problem would be the first party cookie. Now for your listeners, because this gets confusing, third party cookie, first party cookie, generally these first party cookies, they're controlled by the browser, just like the third party cookie is, right? So there's like, there's two types of cookies. Both of them are assigned by your browser, okay? The first party cookie was originally intended simply to store information so that when you visited a website, you wouldn't have to have the pain and the behind of having to put all that information in again. And so that's why they created that cookie. They said, oh, there should be some optimization of the experience on this website that you know limits having to do that over and over and over again. And that's what, what its purpose was. The thing is, you know, because ad tech is so smart, there are ways to use that first party to kind of do what you're doing with third party. It's not exactly the same, but let's just for the audience's sake say it's another way of leveraging those assets, not in the way they were originally intended for the first party, but to keep going with a third party, you know, solution, a backdoor you know, a way of keeping, you know, the the whole system working. And so what I see, if I wasn't running the company I'm running, and I was, you know, still running some other companies I ran in ad tech who, you know, were part of making those big investments, I would do it this way too, right? Just to put this on the table, that's exactly what I would try to do. And so most of the industry is moving in that direction, because in a way, they have no other choice, because the only other choice would be, throw out a lot of what we did and start over. And and that's so difficult to do when you're a billion dollar company that has, you know, all of the clients and the people. It's it's like, it's almost virtually unheard of, right? That companies do that. They tend to kind of ride it out and try to keep the assets going for as long as possible. And and it won't work, you know, so just for the audience's benefit, it's not a scalable, you know, solution to the problem. It's a solution, but it does not scale. And as I, you know, as you would expect, you know, those people at Apple are pretty bright, Steve. Yeah. Right? You know, the biggest, you know, most valuable technology company on the planet. I think they can figure out that this is happening and are already starting to implement changes to thwart this mechanism. Exactly. So it's like it's kind of doomed. It's doomed effectively, you know, to, to not be able to scale. Yeah, no, you're right. And look, Apple is one of those companies that if they do anything two things happen. People sit up and take notice and then they will more than likely follow the leader. Exactly. I've seen it systematically. Like over the last two years, they keep, you know, making changes. Like they started with the app. You know, remember Facebook had a whole bunch of problems because they, you know, they made some changes to the app tracking, you know, and then they started making changes to the Safari browser to eliminate third-party cookies entirely, which they do. You know, they created a their own private VPN to hide your IP address, which is another mechanism that's typically used by ad tech to identify someone. So they, they put in a VPN, you know, to, to basically, you know, thwart the use of a person's IP address. And in their latest iOS release, you know, they also started making changes to uh, URL tracking. It's like another trick that gets used by ad tech to identify people. And in their 
uh, one of their recent updates to Safari, they started implementing some artificial intelligence technology that would allow them to determine when that cookie is actually being used for its original intended first party cookie I'm talking about now that, mm -hmm. you know, for its first. So they, they figured out some AI to figure out when that cookie is actually being used for its originally intended purpose and when it's not and, and started preventing the use of it for the not case, i.e. the not being advertising. Right. So like the writings on the wall, yeah. you know, is, is the answer. Yeah, for sure. What, what I hear mostly too is, with third party, you know, the Google deprecation coming in, unless I read, mm. correct, me if, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the plan is by the end of 2024 for Google to do away with third party cookies. Of course, we all, we all know they've delayed it, I think, at least twice. But assuming that does finally happen, what I get asked a lot is brands now need to capture more first party data, right? So not first party cookies, which is different. And, and the first-party data, which is why you see a lot of brands starting loyalty programs, doing events, doing giveaways, which is just a you know a very, quite honestly, transparent way of capturing my data, your data, as first-party data. Right. Yeah. So here's the thing that's interesting about that, because you're absolutely right. 100%. Everybody's on a tear to try to collect more first-party data. However... <laughs> Uh, the the primary reasons that the entire industry is scrambling to do that is because of what we said earlier, which is all of the companies that serve those brands in the ad tech and data and analytics world have a motive to try to keep the first party cookie working. And the mechanism to do that is to make sure their clients are storing that data So because they need that data. They got to onboard it right, for them to do prospecting activity through the first party cookie. And so it, the, the interesting thing about that is we have an industry where companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars doing something that is intended to keep their advertising going when the reality is it won't. And so it's not the the optimal way to do it. People often get this confused, Steve. You know, there's a difference between the work you do to analyze your customers and the work you do to prospect for new customers. Like you can think of them as, as separate events. And in fact, we used to call them customer marketing and prospecting. It's really the same. First party data, your own customer's data and prospecting, these things have always been the same. You know, so like, you know, you analyze your own customers, like I said, you find out like who Rich is and like, you know, this, this analysis we talked about earlier, you know, I find out that I like Rich is a good customer and I go online and I find more lookalikes for Rich. It, it, in large part, the way you do that, the segmentation, the analysis, it's done, it, they're very similar. Okay. So they're a fit. They like, they overlap, right? The problem is even if you collect all your first party data, which you're doing anyways, because people are buying from you all the time and you're storing it. If you can't onboard it, then it's of no value for prospecting. In which case you gotta think, I gotta do something different for prospecting because I can't leverage that information mm -hmm. to do my prospecting. I need a different way to do it. That's one problem. The second problem is marketing itself historically has had those two things aligned and now they're not aligned. 
And as a result, does that make you rethink the actual customer marketing that you're doing? Because it doesn't align with prospecting, let's just say into the future as all of these mechanisms go away. It's very complicated. You know, advertising is is getting more complicated, I guess, like a lot of technology. Yeah, it really is. And and I want to get to that in a second. But before I do, I want to make sure we, because I know you have very definitive thoughts on how we approach the challenge that we've just talked about, right? And you said something to me prior to this about it's really a fundamental shift that you're talking about here from going the who are my prospects to the why, right? And, and the role that large language generative AI needs to play to solve this problem. So expand on, you know, this is, this is huge, right? If you're a marketer and you're listening to this, <laughs> pay close attention because this is a fundamental shift. Rich is, is going to talk about going from the, the, the who, which we've all been conditioned to do, who are my prospects, who are my customers, to the why. So ex- expand on that. Yeah, that's it's exactly right. I'll, I'll tell you, it, the catalyst for thinking about it that way, Steve, it was really this issue we just talked about: the privacy, the you know, the inability to target consumers. It, it, you know, this is this is what's provided the catalyst to rethink the advertising problem in our in our minds. And, and I think you know our background, so you know we were part of creating the ad tech industry. So. You know, we had a context for how that industry was developed, forged, the data, the, the internet plumbing. Th- these were all things in our minds that we were thinking about, you know, well, five or six years ago when we first, you know, went down the path to, to, to say, hey, is there a, a better, different way to solve the advertising problem that doesn't require the use of consumer data? That was our construct. Let's not use any consumer data at all whatsoever, none. Could we design a solution? And the first order problem with that was, can we change our own paradigm? Like you just said, very succinctly, it's so hard for marketers to think a different way other than the way we've all been thinking for 50 years. Who is Steve? Oh, Steve, how do I find out who Steve is? I get a hold of Steve and I keep adding information about Steve, his income, his age, his gender, his family, his, you know, you name it. As much data as his interests, right? I just keep adding all this information. This is just generally the way we've always thought about it. And that's a very who-based way of thinking. Who is my audience? Who is my audience made of? Who are these individuals? The more powerful question and it's not like we invented this. I mean, marketers have been thinking about this for forever. Is not necessarily who. It's it's why. It's it's always been why. It's like it's nice to know who Steve is if Steve is a client of mine, but am I not really more interested in in why Steve is buying my things than I am who he is? The only reason I'm kind of interested in who Steve is is because the mechanisms that I use to do my marketing are based on having to know who Steve is. So we, you know, when we were thinking about solving this problem five or six years ago, said, hey, let's release ourselves from the paradigm of who mm-hmm. and see if we can't build a solution that instead answers the more powerful question, why is a consumer interested in this product or service? And by extraction, when I prospect, 
why is someone in front of any screen at this given moment? And if we can match the reasons why people are interested in the products and services with the reason why someone might be in front of a screen at this very moment without having to use their identity, without having to use any consumer data about them, we might have a pretty great solution here, right? That could, you know, solve the future advertising problem because, you know, we're talking about us thinking about this six years ago, right? And now it's caught up. And at the same time, you know, have something that, that performs even better simply because it's based more on, on, on why than it is on who. And we were able to do that. And, and the way we decided to approach that problem six or seven years ago was to use large language model artificial intelligence. That, that was the only solution we thought could be leveraged sufficiently to be able to understand the why. And we can talk about that more, but I'll pause there because I'm sure there's probably a bunch of questions you have just in that, right? Yeah, without question. And I'm already envisioning marketers, CMOs, what have you, listening to this going, this guy's crazy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, going, what do you mean? It's I, you're, you're telling me not to worry about the who anymore and go to the why? Well, I don't think you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you're advocating to just discount the who entirely. But it's the why that then ties into the who, if that makes sense. Does that sound right? Yeah, yes. It, it, there's always a person. Right. Uh, ultimately, a person buys your products and services. Maybe one way to look at it is an audience for your product or service is made up of a bunch of people, right? Today, we market directly to the personal data of the people within that audience. Extra extract yourself from that for a second and think, that audience is also made up of a bunch of reasons why those people actually bought. More than one reason. Many, many different reasons why they bought, right? That's what we're marketing to. And when you do that, one of the terms, the, the quirky terms we've coined is when you market to who, you get more people who look like who. And when you market to why, you get all the who's who share the same reasons why you got to think of extend that a little bit, but, but there's some sense in it, meaning you're actually kind of biased to the way, you know, it works now. It's like, if I assume all my customers are like rich, I'm going to get more riches, right? Rich how, you know, when I market to why I'm, I'm eliminating that bias. I'm saying, I don't care, you know, who rich how is. I really just care about all the reasons why people are interested in my product or services. And I want to get a good grasp for why that is right. Right, exactly. And I know there's a, because I hear this, and you probably do too, to some extent, the fear, and that's really the operative word of AI. I'm not even going down the path of AI taking jobs. I'm going down the path of AI taking all the humanity out of marketing. And this is, mm -hmm. that's not what you're saying at all. And I want to make sure no. people understand that. Yeah, no, and that's not, what, that's not how we've implemented you know, our technology and the use of large language, you know, model. Maybe, I, you know, if you want, we can talk a little bit about that. But I like this paradigm discussion because it's so important and so difficult. You know, we all humans, we, we struggle, you know, to, to change the, you know, our paradigm simply because we're so fixated on it that it becomes reality. And we're like, when somebody comes to you and says, you don't have to market based on who people are anymore. And you're thinking, well, that other person who's saying that they must be an idiot because that's how you do it. Right. And it's like, so they kind of think you're the idiot, right, to some degree. And I think that's rightly the way it is. You know, a great analogy for this uh, I use with people is 
you know, train tracks are, you know, roughly four and a half feet apart. Nobody really knows why. And nobody cares, honestly, right? They're like, I don't know, they just are, right? But if you think about the paradigm of a train track being four and a half feet apart, you know, what's the consequence of that? The, the, the tracks that they've actually built, the tunnels they had to build were, you know, short and, and high, but narrow. The boxes that sit on it, the, the trains themselves are narrow, which means they, you know, they can't go fast around corners because they fall over. The materials that they transport have to be built a certain way to fit in the damn box that's in it. There's so many consequences to the simple a- answer of why are they four and a half feet apart? And the reason they're four and a half feet apart is because back in Roman days, the chariots, you know, had to have a horse between the wheels. And the wheels are about four and a half feet apart. So when they started colonizing Europe with trains, they put tracks down in the wheels of the of the chariots. And that's it. That's why it is. Right. And it's like, well, okay, well why don't we just change that, make it wider and get more stuff in a box and, you know, and have more efficiency? It, you know, you can't think past it. That's a paradigm. Right. You're just like, it just is. This is a paradigm shift. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, the industry struggles. But any industry would struggle with trying to get around this, right? And I'm I'm a stu- I'm an amateur student of human nature, just in general, why people do things. And we all know every, people are generally reluctant to change. Yeah. And I wrote something. Gosh, it's probably almost ten years ago, and it was called the six most dangerous words in history. And those six words were, "That's how it's always been done." <laughs> right. And I had fun with it and I just wrote about, you know, well, you know, if Edison was, you know, never invented the light bulb because people like living with candles because that's the way it's always been done. Now, I had I had extreme fun with it doing it that way. But that's the point, meaning if we, we just stick to that's how it's always been done, that's, you know, look, we never get anywhere. But marketers, you know, this is a like you said, this is a this is a paradigm shift. And the reluctance is going to be huge to go, wait a minute, you're asking me to fundamentally change something that that's how it's always been done. Yes, that's there's And there's two problems. You know, that's one of them overcoming the paradigm, which we've learned, right, that, you know, this is this is not easy to do because of exactly what you just said. Right. The second thing is what we talked about at the beginning of the show, which is the incumbents are incentivized and motivated to keep those brands, those companies thinking about who they, they, because that's how they, you know, they get paid and they don't want them thinking about any other way. In fact, if anything, you know, if I was still on that side of the equation, I'd be telling them there's no other way to do this. You have to get on board with this, which is why so many companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, collecting first party data that in large part, they probably will not be able to use for prospecting in any meaningful way. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Let's look ahead two, five, seven years from now, where do you see, you know, marketing and AI and the who versus why and cookie-less world and put your prognosticator hat on and, and give us a, you know, a glimpse into how, how Rich Howe sees the future? Well, I, I don't know that Rich Howe's got a crystal ball like anybody else, but, but I have been around, obviously, the advertising and marketing and technology world for the majority of my career. And clearly the path we're on, we went on because we thought we could build a company that becomes the advertising targeting technology for the next generation, just as was the who based, you know, for the current generation. 
And so we, we, we truly believe that we're on, well, we're way ahead of anybody else because we're just not aware of any other company that's using large language model, you know, artificial intelligence for this use case. Of course, we know, you know, Bard, you know, OpenAI, Claude, even X now is coming out with a Gronk or Grok or something. I can't remember, Grok, something like that. But they're, they've got very different use cases, right? They're more about interacting, chat, you know, asking a question and getting an answer. Ours was specifically designed for what we've been discussing, you know, here for the last half an hour, which was, could we figure out why consumers are interested in a brand, a product or a service without having to know anything about them? And we did. And I'll give you an example of you know, that, a simple one out of many. It's usually easy for an audience to understand because it's such a story in the zeitgeist of America. Imagine you're the Wall Street Journal, right? I hope they don't mind me using their name. And and you, as we well know, are the company that broke the Theranos fraud. And so everybody knows that. And it was a big case for them. Consequently, if you think about it, people, anonymous people who might be interested in a Wall Street Journal subscription may be interested in that subscription simply because of the Theranos case out of one of thousands of other reasons why people might want to get a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. That would be one because it's probably the biggest, one of the biggest stories they ever broke. Just extend that analogy and then I'll, I'll bring it together for the audience. Associating Theranos with the Wall Street Journal, it, 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 there's more to it than that. We all know that Theranos, you know, was attached to Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Belwani. You know, the board of Theranos had former secretary George Schultz. Um, his grandson, Tyler Schultz, is the one who broke the case and told the Wall Street Journal. There's an individual who wrote the story at the Wall Street Journal that was the Theranos case. These things are all connected, maybe is the way for your audience to think about it. Theranos is connected to all those things. All those things, by the way, are based on language, if you think about it. George Schultz on the internet has hundreds of sites written about him. Tyler Schultz has been written about now. The Wall Street Journal has been written about, and there's stuff about the journal online. What our technology does is it crawls, it continues to crawl the internet all the time. And it's reading everything. It's it's always reading everything. It doesn't keep that content, by the way. I'm not going to get into how Bard and OpenAI does, but, but our purpose is not to be able to know a piece of information and then regurgitate it afterwards when someone asks us a question about it. That's not the purpose, the use case we had. Our use case was nothing other than to try to figure out these associations, right? Because we had a marketing intention in, in, in mind. And more importantly, we had a why intention in mind. So imagine for a second, we've read everything there is to read publicly that's available about the journal. And we've read everything else that has to do with everything. Would we not, as a result of that, be able to figure out, for example, that Theranos and the journal are highly correlated? If for no other reason than when we read the million things ever written about the Wall Street Journal, that we see Theranos show up a lot. It's not that simple, Steve, but let's just make it simple, right? In all of the stuff that's being written about the Wall Street Journal, there's a lot of times talking about Theranos. So our AI would conclude, aha, there is a strong correlation between the Wall Street Journal and Theranos. 
Now, by extension, the AI would also know, because it's read everything, that there's a strong connection between Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and Sonny Belwani and Elizabeth Holmes and Tyler Schultz and George Schultz, because George Schultz, you know, you see, you can kind of map, think about a map, you know, in terms of the way the AI works. And, and that's effectively what our AI does. So it says, I know that Theranos is important to the Wall Street Journal because it's one of the reasons why they're going to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. Okay, so that's one side. If you want to look at our tech, that's one side of the equation. And that's one of many. That's why I'm trying to simplify this. There's thousands of those reasons ones, but let's just pick, pick on Theranos for a second. All right. Okay, now on the internet, the open web, in any given day, there's, I don't know, 200 billion opportunities to buy a media spot on anything. And remember I said earlier, you know, the, the way our tech works is it figures out why someone's interested in something and then it tries to match that with why someone's in front of a screen. So the question is, how do you, how do you figure out why someone's in front of the screen if you don't know who they are, right? And the answer to that is also large language AI based. So when someone's in front of a screen, it's not like there's nothing on that screen, right? There are words on that page and those words are linked to a lot of other words, much in the same way Theranos was linked to Sonny Balwani and George Schultz, et cetera. So imagine for a second, there's a page available and it's a, let's say it's a bio of George Schultz for a second, former secretary of state. And, and imagine there's nothing on that because there wouldn't be because it's a bio about, you know, his life in government because, you know, his most of his success, as we well know, and his notoriety as a result of his work in government. So there's nothing in there that would tell you that somehow that page is associated with Theranos in any way, other than it's George Schultz. Our AI would conclude the following, okay? It would say, oh, here's a page. It's a page of content. I see George Schultz is in that page, that, you know, the, the person, George Schultz, you know, written, re read from the page because it has read, our AI has read this page before. And it'll say, wait a second. The AI, it knows that right now, the highest correlation of George Schultz to anything is Theranos. As sad as that might be because of his storied career as a politician, right? It, you know, he's known more in the zeitgeist currently for his association with Theranos. And it would say, wait a second, this is a bio, but, it, but really why someone's looking at this right now is because they're interested in Theranos and the Theranos case. And as a result, the AI would say, this is a match for the Wall Street Journal. Let's put a let's put their ad on this page because that's really the reason why this person who we don't know is in front of the screen is in front of the screen. Does that help, Steve? Take something complicated and and make it understandable to some degree? Absolutely. You know, what does all that mean for brands, right? Of how the generative AI works. And I think you explained that. You know, it a lot of technology is just so complicated, but it, in a way we're matching the whys instead of the who's. And, exactly. and, you know, how, how we do it, yes, it's large language-based, you know, artificial intelligence. But from a brand's perspective, other than making sure they understand the mechanisms, which they should, because you're using technology and you want to know generally how it works. It's like, does it work is the, is the, you know, is the point. You know, does this actually perform better than anything else? And we know it does because, you know, obviously, you know, you, you know, our company now we're, you know, almost $100 million in revenue. We've got, you know, more than enough customers to have proven out this value proposition. And yes, it works. But more importantly, it opens up marketers to a whole bunch of new data that they've never had access to. So 
you know, yes, our AI does all that targeting, but it shares that information I just talked about, right? Right, with them when they when they go into like you know an interface that we have, they can see all these reasons why. And I will tell you, for the forward-thinking CMO who knows that data is power, there are so many insights in those reasons why they could form a lot of what they're doing. Their creative strategies would change. You know, by knowing why, you can actually adapt your creative from being, you know, something more than what we use today, which are almost always who-based. It's like it's an individual. You know, pick, <laughs> pick the individual, you know, in the picture. Right. Why is it an individual? Because it's who based. Right. Right. If if it's why based, you can customize around those reasons why the partnerships you do. Right. The billboard. There's no end to the things you could do when you know the why that that take you outside of the box that we've been stuck in around who, which is really a box. Right. We have, you know, we don't think of it that way, but we're kind of stuck in a box. Right. You know, that we've been stuck in for, you know, 50 years. Well, that's 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 how it's always been done. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. I want to be mindful of time and let's have a little fun now. Not that that wasn't fun, but let's get into your, your musical taste. And you see behind me the album wall in my studio. And I have a very eclectic taste in music. And my favorite song of all time is called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. And the lyrics just always have always connected with me. So putting you on the spot, is there a song? Is there a lyric? Is there something musical? Could be anything musical that resonates with you more than another, and why? There is not this for the same reasons of you. I don't know. Favorite is the word for mm-hmm. me. When I get stressed out, how do you like this? Okay, here's a good thing. When I get stressed out, which we all do, because you know we're inundated with a million problems all day long, every day. My go-to is the carpenters and most people won't won't realize that from me because i like you i have an eclectic taste and actually as a as a youth i very much liked metal but but i like metal and everything in between now i you know my music tastes are quite varied but i will tell you when people see me on a plane if they see me i'm lying back and i got my headphones on i'm probably listening to karen carpenter okay because there's just something about that voice and that band that I'm like, oh, this is, it's haunting. It's beautiful. So <laughs> there it is. There's, there's what I, yeah. that's, that's me. <laughs> is there one song or is it just anything by them? Anything by the Carpenters I can put on. Uh, it's just, just awesome, awesome music. So like you, I'm really a fan of awesome music, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I love Motown. I love jazz. You know, I go to a lot of plays. So you know, I like theater music as well. Uh, I mean, there's really no, I don't think there's a music genre, you know, I, I don't like, I like some better than others, but music for me is, is a very strange phenomenon. I don't know. It affects our brains in ways I don't think we yet understand fully um, in a good way. Very oh, good way. Completely. Listen, I've had an incredible time. I know the audience will very much enjoy your thoughts and your tips, and I cannot thank you enough for your time. It's been my pleasure, Steve. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. Thank you.